0: great way to introduce us. I encourage you, open, perfect segue into Ecclesiastes, right about in the middle of your Bibles. If you have a paper Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm Pastor Jay. Good morning. It is a pleasure to have you with us and joining us to worship our living God. We've just begun a new series last weekend in this very unique book. And one of the reasons we said this is such a unique book in all of the canon of Scripture 66 books in English, is that it's a journal. Last week we said a little bit of a perverse comment. Do you, if you ever wanted to read, we probably some of us have, somebody else's journal, <laughs> somebody else's diary. And this is a journal, it's a diary, it's a candid diary of somebody who became a very disillusioned hedonist, pleasure seeker. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote it down and targeted young people of all things. Bring, keeps bringing that up. Young people, when you're young, listen to this, pay attention to this. Because the young, one thing they believe is they're invincible for the most part. We start losing that, you know, we, we start forgetting that as we get older and we realize it's an illusion. But this is for all of us, for live and breathing. Ecclesiastes has a very important message for us about the transitoriness of life. Someone who wrote this is called the preacher or teacher. They're described. A couple of ways, but one of the things is they're described as a king in Jerusalem, king in Jerusalem, and somebody, obviously, as you read their journal, who had a lot of money, a lot of resources, and a lot of access to power and prestige. This person had abundance, and that becomes very evident. The historical view of this, in fact, almost a universal view of this is that Solomon was the author through all of church history that was pretty much believed until about the 18th or 19th century when liberal higher biblical criticism infected universities in first Europe and then starting in America, where all kinds of uh, other academic theories came up. Point is, don't get too uh, strung out on academic theories about who wrote the book. It's in Scripture. There's never been a doubt it's in the Hebrew canon of Scripture, and that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So I think Solomon is the author, I think everything points to Solomon being the author, not only described as king in Jerusalem, but all the descriptions of the money and the wealth, the disillusionment, all fit Solomon and really don't fit anybody else in that sense. What we learn in Ecclesiastes is he spent years of his life running after earthly pleasures, only to discover something very interesting, something some of us have discovered, not all of us, but some of us, the more you chase worldly amusements, even good amusements. Most of the stuff, by the way, he mentions isn't intrinsically evil. Whether it's drink or food or sex, all this stuff, it's how it's used. When you use your life the wrong way, when you pursue drink or alcohol or food or sex or anything outside of the way God intended for it to be used, that's when it becomes evil. So the things—the the point is not he's, he's not targeting evil things. He's targeting misusing, disordered loves, as St. Augustine would say, getting them mixed up and putting things of the world first. The more he chased worldly things, the more miserable he got. The more he chased after the things of this world and put those first ahead of God, the more depressed he got. And on and on it rolls. And so that's what we're going to be looking. Here's the question Ecclesiastes poses. When it's all said and done, young people, especially targeting you, when it's all said and done, how do you build a life where you find lasting joy and satisfaction? That is the question he is asking. Who here is not interested in the answer to that question? That is why this is such an important book. Last week we did a flyover over the entire book. Today we're going to actually turn our attention to the first section. Remember chapter headings and chapter divisions are something not added to at least a thousand years after the text was written. If you look at the, this book in Hebrew, there's several sections to it And chapters. What we call chapters 1 and 2 are the first section of Ecclesiastes. And so that's what we're going to dive into today, chapters 1 and 2, where Solomon is looking for joy and satisfaction in all the wrong places, some of the places we are actually searching ourselves here this morning. Chapter 1 opens in the first 11 verses this way, by reminding us of something we hate to think about. The brevity of life, the fleeting nature of life. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 as it begins. The words of the teacher, I think better translation is preacher, and I say that because you can translate the word quelleth in Hebrew there, teacher or preacher, but the one being described here is the one speaking to the assembly, so I think preacher is a better distinction. The words of the teacher, preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, again pointing to Solomon. Now, English, it says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. If you have an English translation in front of you, which I assume most of you do, the three most dominant English words chosen in English translations there are meaningless or vanity or futility. Now, the problem with those words is this. It sounds a little bit like Solomon (laughs) is a first-year college student in philosophy who comes home? I know because I minored in philosophy in college. And you, and you, you get you, you, when you're in college and you get into a philosophy class. Suddenly, you you imagine yourself uh, uh, all knowing uh, for a while until you start getting a little further in life and realize you're not. It sounds like a first year college student coming home and announcing to his family at, at Thanksgiving, "Hey, the whole universe is pointless and meaningless, and there's no God." That's what it kind of sounds like, right? That's not what Solomon's doing here. Solomon is not an absurdist, he's not an existentialist, he's not a nihilist, and he's not an atheist by any means. He was an idiot a lot of the time, but he wasn't any of those other things. Right? So what is he saying? Well, you've got to go behind the, the word here in verse 2. In fact, there's a Hebrew word used in verse 2 five times in the Hebrew text. Five times in the Hebrew text. Let me put it up on the screen. I don't do this real often, but when someone uses a word this often, in fact, this word is used either 37 or 38 times in Ecclesiastes, depending on a couple of textual variants, but it's used a lot, almost 40 times, but it's used five times just in verse 2. So right out of the chute, five times Solomon uses his word. Now, some of you have seen the word written in English letters. We call that transliterate. When you go from one language, you don't translate the word. You just plug in other letters. You can either write it H-E-B-E-L... Actually, that's how it's spelled. Or H-E-V-E-L, that's really more how it's pronounced. When you see the word up there, by the way, it reads that way. Okay. Not the wrong way, just the other way. <laughs> I always get a kick out of people saying, uh, you know, oh, over there in Ireland or England, they drive on the wrong side of the road. To which I smile and I say, really? I didn't know there was a right side and a wrong side to drive on. Well, you know, the other, other side. So Hebrew, Semitic languages, Arabic. Urdu and others, they read the other direction, not the wrong direction. But the middle letter there is a bait in Hebrew, second letter in Hebrew alphabet, and it is normally pronounced B like boy, except you see those little markings underneath the letters. Hebrew, almost every Hebrew word is just three consonants. Today, if you go to Israel, you'll see signs, and they're all in Hebrew, and they're only in consonants. That's it. Why are those little markings under there? Well, about a 1,000 years after the canon closed, the Hebrew canon closed, the Masorites, they were called, added little points. They were they're, they're, What they are, they're called vowel points, but they're clues how to pronounce the word. As less and less people spoke Hebrew and forgot how to pronounce it, they thought, well, this is important to remember how to pronounce it. So they had these little vowel markings to signal to people how to pronounce it. The vowel markings on this indicate that's a soft B, soft bait. That's why you get hevel or hebel. So I, I'm going to call it hevel because that's really, really, I think, more accurate how to pronounce it. So hevel. Five times it's used right here, and right out of the chute, you get Hevel. Well, what does Hevel mean? Well, it's used almost 70 times in the Hebrew Bible. In different, Psalms uses it quite a bit, for example. And it translates a number of ways in English. For example, it translates temporary, breeze, breath, vapor, mist, smoke. You get the idea. It's very transitory. That's the point. So right out of the chute here, five times, brevity, briefness, vapor, mist, smoke, momentary, temporary. That's what he's saying. That's very different from the universe has no meaning and there's no God. That's, that's not what he's saying. He's saying everything in life is brief, momentary, fleeting. It's like if you have a diffuser, you know, one of those electric diffusers, it's like grabbing after that stuff or grabbing after a puff of smoke. You think it looks solid, you grab it, and there's nothing there. That's what Hevel is. And five times, in fact, this section opens with five usages of Hevel. And then in the last verse of this section, which is verse 26, chapter 2, it ends with Hevel. And then there's several uses of Hevel in between. So it becomes very clear, very quick. Solomon is putting a huge emphasis on the momentariness of everything around us. And the preacher is declaring, ladies and gentlemen, young people, Everything around us, including you, is temporary. It's heavily. It's, it's smoke. It's a puff of smoke. It's, it's, it's mist. It's vapor. It looks like it's there, and then it's gone. That's how long it lasts. Look at verse 3. Solomon is pointing to the march of time. Just considering, look at, look at all your efforts, all the things you're trying to do in life. What do people gain from all their labors? at which they toil under the sun? Obviously, the answer is nothing. Why? Because it's Hevel. All human labor and all the things you're striving to build up in your 401k and your ministry and your business and your family and all the things you're trying to do in life, it's all illusory in the sense that it's going to last. It's not. It's momentary. It's it's, it's temporary. Verse 3. And then he pictures in verses 4 on in poetry, most of chapter 1 is poetry in Hebrew the short-lived, repetitive nature of life. Generations come, verse 4, generations go. The earth remains forever. Sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. Verse 7, all streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing. Boy, isn't that true? Or the ear is full of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done going to be done again. My daddy used to tell me, anything you can think of has tried, been tried under the sun, good and evil. That's right there, the repetitive nature of life. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? The obvious answer is no. Is there, it was there already long ago, was there before our time. And he goes on to make another point about remembrance. Let me get to that in just a second. What is his point? His point here is not to be negative, pessimistic, and bleak simply for the sake of being bleak. I know some of you are sitting there right now thinking, wow, I came here for some inspirational goodies this morning. This is not at all what I was hoping for. I have people that will say that on occasion to me. What were you hoping for? Our goal here is to tell you what God has said. And there is a reason why thinking about these kind of things is so helpful. I love to read the Puritans and I like to read their sermons from 300 or 400 years ago. One of the things I have noticed in the Puritans, the Puritans have things they didn't do so well, but one of the things they did well and did very differently than a lot of modern day preaching is they talked about death a lot because they lived with a lot of death. John Owen, the great Puritan, lost all 11 of his children. All 11. Only one made it to adulthood, and she died, and then his wife died. That's not uncommon among the Puritans. They talked about death, and they wrote about it, and they said, it's a good thing to remember we're temporary, we're brief. We're only here for a minute. What are you doing with Christ? That's why I like reading the Puritans. So remember the aim here. He's saying, look at the march of time. Not only is life fleeting and brief, it doesn't seem to go anywhere. There's a repetitive nature. The the sun chases its own tail. The wind goes round and round. The rivers flow into the sea and they never fill it up. So is the world, so it will always be. So is human life, so it will always be. Why is he telling us this? I'm going to keep coming back to this. Why is this important? Young people, why do you need to hear this? 20-somethings, 30-somethings who think you're going to live forever. Why is this so critical? Why? He's reminding us as you look at this that life is momentary. Our achievements are momentary. Our bodies, even though they will last for eternity, in this life they are going to break down and be brief. Nothing will last from all the toil and all the effort we're putting in to build up our own little kingdom around us our house, our stuff, our retirement accounts, our clothing, whatever, it's all going to come to an end. And there's a reason He's telling it. Why? Because He wants to remind us very powerfully, and He's going to do it at the end of this section and more powerfully at the end of the book, there is no lasting joy and satisfaction in life apart from a relationship with the living God. And we know from the New Testament that means through His Son, Jesus Christ. And just in case we haven't heard his point, strongly enough, in verse 11, he's going to emphasize something that he does that grates on us even more, and that is this. Not only is everything you're doing not going to last, not only are you going to die, unless Christ comes back first, but you will not be remembered. How's that? You will not be remembered. And not only that, your children will not be remembered you say, wow, it's getting grimmer. Hang on, there's going to be some good stuff coming. I just gave you a good line. Remember, he's telling us this for a reason to remind us only in God and having a relationship with the living God. But you're not going to be remembered. Verse 11, no one remembers the former generations. Even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. So no one's going to remember you. If Christ doesn't return and life goes on, if Christ doesn't return for 500 years from now, you will be forgotten, your kids will be forgotten. And that's a pretty common emphasis in the book of Ecclesiastes, this forgetting. And if you think you will be remembered, let me ask you right off the top of your head. Do you know the names on top of your head of your great, great, great grandfather and grandmother on both sides? (laughs) I would doubt there's hardly anybody here that could name them. And in less than 200 years, that'll be you, if Christ does not return. I want to look at one other passage in the Bible that drives home this same point with equal power, and that is in the New Testament, the book of James. So I encourage you to turn to James chapter 4 for just a minute, where James tells us two things about life that are in full agreement with Ecclesiastes. All the way at the end of your New Testament, the book of James, chapter 4, verses 13 through verse 17. James 4, 13 through verse 17, he's going to tell us two things that are in full agreement with Ecclesiastes. In fact, it feels like James just borrowed this section from the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, especially books like Job and Ecclesiastes. James tells us two things. Number one, life is unpredictable. Look at verses 13 and 14, and that's incorporated in the word hevel, by the way. I'll tell you why. Now listen, you who say to me, today or tomorrow, we'll go to this city or that city or spend a year here, carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist. Or have you heard that before? You're a mist that appears for a moment and then vanishes. A mist that appears for a moment and then vanishes. The Bible reminds us from a human perspective, life is unpredictable. He's telling us that. You can't even plan for tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And this actually ties in with the Hebrew word hevel, because hevel not only refers to life as temporary, momentary, brief, puff of smoke. Hevel also points to the fact that life is a puzzle, mysterious. It's an enigma. It's more more and yet less than we hope for, and it's always, almost always, different than we expect. How many times in a given day, in a given week, do you say to yourself something like this, Well, that week certainly didn't turn out like I expected, right? That day certainly didn't turn out like I expected. How about over the course of a year? That year didn't turn out like I expected. Wow. Why? Because it's unpredictable. We have no control over the future. We have no control over this afternoon, no control over tomorrow. Not only that, we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. It is utterly unpredictable. Life often appears to be going one way, looks like it's going one way, all the data points is going one way, and then suddenly it flips and it completely goes an opposite direction. Right? Life is unpredictable. Now, I know some of you don't know Christ. I know a lot of you know Christ, but I know there are those here today who don't know Christ. But here's what I do know about pastors and people, even in Bible teaching churches, and I'm picking on myself because I'm especially guilty of this. Even though I know the Bible's message is life is hevel and it's temporary and it's a puff of smoke and it's unpredictable. People sit in Bible teaching churches every week and listen to Bible-centered sermons and they still don't believe that. They bought into something, this is my own name for it, cause, that I call cause and effect theology. If you've ever seen The Sound of Music, greatest movie ever made, by the way. If you've ever seen the movie, you know Sound I mean, you know cause and effect theology, right? Becky and I joke about this. I've shared it before. When we pull into like Walmart or something, if we find a parking space close to the front, we often break into a refrain from Sound of Music. What? Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something right because why? Well, God's rewarding me. Ha, 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 ha. Because I got a parking space up front. But on a more subtle note, a lot of evangelical Bible-believing Christians and pastors, even though we never admit it, we sit out, in Bible teaching churches year after year and believe in some kind of a cause-and-effect theology that somehow life is predictable and that if I serve God faithfully, I, 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 He will, in a sense, guarantee certain outcomes. Like what? Well, this is how cause-and-effect theology really looks in our quiet moments. If I serve God faithfully, I'll never lose my marriage. I'll never lose a child. I'll never lose my ministry. I'll never lose my business. I'll never lose my health. On and on it goes. And we sit there and talk to ourselves. If I serve God faithfully, everything will be, for the most part, guaranteed to come out pretty well. If I eat and exercise right, I'll never get cancer. I'll never get diabetes. I'm going to live to be old, take my last breath, gather my people around me, and be ushered into heaven nice and quietly. If I raise my kids right, I'll never have a prodigal. My kids will all land perfect and become productive, God-fearing citizens of our great republic. Or if I treat others well, here's the one that we really lie to ourselves about, if I treat everyone decently and well, I'll always be treated well. I'd never be lied about or betrayed by anybody. All of that is cause and effect theology and why we need Ecclesiastes. And why we need James is to remind us that life, from our perspective, from a human vantage point, is utterly unpredictable. I hate that message, but it's biblical, and I need to remember it. That's why I think the Puritans are so helpful in driving that home. When we least expect it, life is hevel. We have no control. Do you know that this morning, I told this to Becky on the way in, roughly... On our planet, 150,000 people, on average, every single day, this morning included, 150,000 people got up who will perish today on this earth. That is roughly the death toll on our planet every single day. And a large majority of those people did not expect to die today and will. And it'll happen tomorrow and the next day. The second thing James reminds us of reminds us of not only is it unpredictable; it's a mist. Where've we heard that? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So, first of all, why do you say tomorrow we're going to do this or that? You can't say that; you don't know. Life's unpredictable. And secondly, what is your life? You're nothing but a mist. It's there for a moment and then vanishes. It's clear he was very familiar with his Old Testament. Especially imagery in Job. Job 7.7, my life is but a breath. Job 8.9, our days on earth are a shadow. Or Job 14.2, man springs up like a flower and and then withers away. I've shared a lot of times before. Becky and I love to walk. And our route, I've shared before, goes through a couple cemeteries. One Catholic, one Protestant. So nice, equally divided. And in these large cemeteries... We loved reading tombstones. Tombstones always tell a story. Three of the lessons we've learned from reading a lot of tombstones in these cemeteries, lots of them, I mean lots and lots of them. Three of the lessons we've learned are this. Number one, cemeteries aren't just filled with old people. You like to think kind of, you know, like, oh, all these people, they're all, you know, old, whatever that means. These are old people. That's not true. We are regularly surprised how many 20-somethings 30-somethings, 40-somethings are in cemeteries. It's jolting how many. Second lesson we've learned, it's common for one spouse to outlive the other spouse by 10, 20, and 30 years. That's not a pleasant thing to think about. But as C.S. Lewis said, when you get married, you're making a covenant that one of you is going to die first. That's not a pleasant thing to think about. And thirdly, it's common on older tombstones. I really like this. That's why I think tombstones are so valuable as a memorial, a testimony. It can be. One of the things on older tombstones is that people often listed how long they lived, or they somebody else does, by years, months, and days. So-and-so lived this many years, this many months, this many days. I like that because it's a reminder of Psalms 90 verse 12, which said, God teach us to number our days aright. That we may gain a heart of wisdom. Reflect, you are temporary, you are transitory, I am momentary, and life is brief and I will be gone. That brings us now to the second part, if you go back to Ecclesiastes, now that Solomon has driven this home, driving it home, he's going to keep driving it home. In the second section here, he's going to talk about the emptiness then of earthly pleasures. Since it's all momentary and fleeting and unpredictable, he then dove in with gusto, trying to grasp for meaning and purpose in the things of this world. And again, the point is not that things of this world are necessarily wrong. Some of them are. There are sinful things, but that's not his point here. His point is not that food is evil and sex is evil. They become evil when they're used outside the boundaries God intended, but that's not his point. His point is the misuse of all these things, putting them in front of a pursuit of God, that's when they become empty. He's going to show us three dead ends in particular. Number one, worldly philosophy and worldly wisdom is a dead end. That was one of the things that captured his attention. For example, chapter 1, verses 12 and 14. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. That's actually a very interesting study, by the way. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless and chasing after the wind. There's that word again, hevel. All of it's hevel. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. And then look at chapter 2 for a minute, verses 12 to 16. He hits the same theme, that worldly wisdom and philosophy, if you're looking to it for ultimate direction, ultimate satisfaction, it's a dead end. Chapter 2, verses 12 to 16, then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have their eyes in their heads, while the fool walks in darkness. The picture here is somebody wandering around in the dark and kind of like colliding into the wall and falling over their furniture. You'd say, well, that's kind of a dumb thing to do. What's well, the point? But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. That I said to myself, the fate of the fool will also overtake me. It's good to remind ourselves of that. What do I gain then by being wise? I said to myself, this too is hevel. It's temporary. It's transitory. It's paradoxical. It's a mystery. It's crazy. For the wise, like the fool, will not be remembered long. There's that emphasis again on being forgotten. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. Worldly Wisdom and Philosophy, if you're looking to it for ultimate direction and purpose and meaning, although it is an interesting study, ultimately it's going to be vain and empty. That's his point. Some of you may know the name Jean-Paul Sartre. Jean-Paul Sartre was one of the most world-famous philosophers of despair uh, back in the 1930s, 40s and 50s, right up through to his death in 1980. He was French, wrote some very impactful books in the secular world. His big magnum opus, Being and Nothingness. How's that for something to slog through? Em- life is like an empty bubble on the sea of nothingness. That was his worldview. And then he wrote a, a play called No Exit. That life has no exit. It just, it ends and that's it. You, you, you become nothing. And then one of his novels that really made an impact was called Nausea. That's what his view of life was like. It's like nausea. And interestingly, nausea is about somebody who left, or somebody who looks at somebody else's uh, diary. It's a fictitious diary of a, of, a, of a brilliant person who goes out and seeks meaning in science, pleasure-seeking, and philosophy, only to conclude that after looking at it all, that mankind is simply an evolutionary accident, and that that creates a new kind of this just ugh feeling, which it would. He writes at the end of the book, nothing happens while you live. The scenery changes. People come and go, but that's about it. There are no beginnings. Days are tacked on to days without rhyme or reason and continual monotonous monotonous, uh, addition. That's it. Sartre said exactly what Solomon is saying, except Solomon believed in God. Sartre did not. Second dead end, So not only is human philosophy and wisdom, if you look to it for ultimate satisfaction, the dead end, second dead end is one probably a lot more of us have tried, and that is pleasure seeking. Look at verses 3 through 10 of chapter 2. And as I read this, by the way, out loud, I I said this in the first service, would you please pay attention to pronouns here, especially first person singular, I. Notice how often everything comes back to him. He was one gigantic self-centered narcissist here. Ready? Ready? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. Again, that all points to Solomon. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And all this my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself, nothing my eyes desired. Wow, there was a guy who had endless means. And I refused my heart, no pleasure. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. I surveyed, all that my hands had done, all of this—it was hevel. It was me. It was like grabbing after smoke and morning mist and the dew, and there's nothing there. There is literally nothing there. The more solemn and chaste pleasure and piled-up possessions, the more he realized he was grasping after smoke. By the way, let me just put in a plug here for one of our ministries that I love. We have a ministry on Friday nights called Celebrate Recovery. For those who have become overly dependent, overly addicted to unhealthy pleasures and substances and destructive habits, you get the idea, we have a group that meets on Friday nights that is extremely helpful about sharing and transparency and community and helping each other get unstuck. And I would encourage you, if you have any addictions and substances, any unhealthy habits along this line in any of these areas to at least investigate look into our Celebrate Recovery ministry on Friday nights. It's powerful. One of the things I love is when people stand up or sit there and talk about their, their uh, destructive habits, they're at least open and candid about it, something all of us have, we just, they're probably a little more honest than the rest of us, and I find that refreshing whenever I've sat and listened to some of this, so I would encourage you look into Celebrate Recovery if you're struggling with any of this. When we were in, uh, on our sabbatical this fall, one of the things we did is we went to Memphis, never been in that great city. Not only do they have great barbecue food, but they have Graceland, so we went to Graceland. See where the king, earthly king, Elvis, uh, uh, bought, bought this house in uh, 1956, I think he was 22 years old. Anyhow, very interesting, we had two kind of uh, thoughts going through the whole thing. One was, this is fascinating, Americana, this guy was uber talented and seemed to be remarkably generous. And gregarious and a lot of, you know, very affable and friendly. The other thought and emotion as we walked through the whole thing, both his house and the museums with all his stuff, was just sadness. It was like he couldn't get enough of stuff. For example, it wasn't enough to have one Rolls Royce, he had to have three. This one ended up, by the way, being sold to Michael Landon. <laughs> a little, ch- you know, house, little Charles on a little house on the prairie. It wasn't so little housey on the prairie. And then the next picture shows a Cadillac, one of his many, many Cadillacs. I mean, it was just, it was piled, all the stuff. It takes, it takes building after building to house all the stuff he piled up before he was 42 and dropped dead. And there's a sadness just looking at it all because it was never enough. It was never enough. And that's exactly what Ecclesiastes here is telling us. And we learned last week, by the way, this is an under the sun perspective, a phrase that's used over 25 times in the book. So not only is Hevel used almost 40 times in the sense of everything is like a mirage and smoke and mist, under the sun is used over 25 times. Everything That doesn't mean necessarily an evil secular perspective, although it is that to some degree. It means Solomon was chasing meaning in life by chasing things under the sun. And again, it's not that the things under the sun are necessarily intrinsically evil. It's that if you put them first in life and use them in disproportion, and don't show moderation in them, then they become evil, and they become unsatisfied. That is is his point. Hevel. The preacher runs to remind us, as I quoted from John Wesley last week in his series on Ecclesiastes, there is no happiness outside of God. And I'm not just saying that strongly for you, I'm saying it strongly for me. Because preachers need to be reminded of this maybe more than anybody, because we dabble in this stuff, and we say it, and we preach it, and we forget it. And so I need to be reminded, there's no happiness, Jay, outside of God. No happiness, ultimately. No satisfying. My spouse can't do that for me. My kids, my grandkids, grandkids just wear out. They can't, they can't ultimately provide satisfaction and reconciliation with God and meaning and purpose. Only a relationship with the God above the sun. And when I get my loves in the right order and put Him first. Third dead end is being a slave to work. So first dead end, worldly wisdom philosophy. Second dead end, pleasure seeking. Third dead end, well, you think I'm going to pour myself into my job and my career. Then I'll find satisfaction. And it says in the Hebrew, ha! (laughs) That's a rough translation. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is hevel. It's just smoke and mirrors, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I toiled for under the sun. Because I have to leave them to someone who comes after me. That precious collection you're collecting, whatever it is, it's going to go to somebody else, or your kids or your grandkids are going to throw it all in a dumpster. And who knows whether that person's going to be wise or foolish, yet they have control over the fruit of my toil and all that I poured myself into, and this too is more Hevel. hevel. I was watching a, a, I'm watching a season right now of Alone. You've watched Alone, this survival series. It's considered the you know, the real survival series because these people are dropped off in the middle of nowhere with their own camera equipment and they have to film themselves. So whatever you see, they were enduring on their own. So I'm watching this dude in season two named Larry. No indication Larry knows God in any way. Larry was an interesting guy. But at one point, while he's sitting there just kind of musing about life, he's, going, he's thinking about his own career and that he's got in his mind like 15 more years of being in the workforce. And this is what he says at one point. I'm watching this this week and I like jumped up. It's one of those you get a sticky note and you're like, ah, that'll preach. So this is, what he, this is what he said. He's sitting there talking about how miserable he was and it was raining and he was cold. And he's, he's thinking about his life and I've got 15 more years. i got to be in the workforce. And he said, quote, so I've got to spend the next 15 years basically wasting my life waiting for weekends. What's the problem of waiting for weekends? Monday comes. Every week it comes. And what you thought was going to be so awesome Friday night and Saturday night ends up not being so awesome and Monday comes anyways. Hello, baby. And then he, and then he added this kind of in just, he kind of looked off and he said, just the mundane torture of it all. It's the exact quote. I'm like, that'll preach. Thanks, Larry. <laughs> That's exactly right. The mundane church, and that's exactly what Solomon is telling us. Three dead ends, worldly wisdom and philosophy. Not that it's not interesting. I think there's great value in studying the history of intellectual thought and philosophy and world religions. But don't look to it for ultimate satisfaction, salvation, and meaning. It's going to be empty. Secondly, pleasure seeking. Some of you right here are chasing pleasures right now, and you're putting them ahead of God. You're thinking, that's where I'm going to... Wake up sooner than later, because it's going to be grabbing after smoke. Grabbing after smoke. And third dead end, being a slave to work. Oh, my career, that's going to be fulfilling for me. Well, there may be some fulfilling moments, but I've got news for you. It's going to be Hevel in the end. It's going to be grabbing after smoke. They'll throw you a retirement party. They'll give you some stupid little trinket. Your kids will throw it away, anyways, and that's the end of that. All right. What's the summons? Summons is verse 26. I love it helpful to the preacher when the summons is just given right there, verse 26 gives you the summons. I'm going I'm to summarize it and then I'm going to read the verse. So the summons is this, realize that only, only by owning our sin, this is the first time sin is directly addressed in verse 26 here. Only by owning my sin and pleasing God am I going to have any chance of finding salvation And lasting satisfaction and joy in life. And that's why Solomon keeps addressing this to young people. Young people. Oh, young people here today. Hear this from God. Let me read verse 26, make a couple comments, and we'll land the plane. Ready? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, that's the first time that sin is directly addressed in the book. To the sinner, He gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless to chasing after the wind. See, I told you he's not a nihilist. He's not an uh, an absurdist or existentialist or an atheist. He believes in God. He just got it all backwards for a long time until he finally got it straightened out. So this is the first mention of sin. And secondly, the key to finding joy and satisfaction in life and salvation at all is owning up to my sin and pleasing God, which means this book, ladies and gentlemen, kids, boys and girls, young people, points directly to the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's Jesus who said in John 10, I came to give them, who's them, his people, to give them life and to give it abundantly. That means salvation from judgment and hell, but then even more than that, joy and purpose and meaning in this life, in this life. So I ask you as we close, what is it? If you're honest enough with yourself right now, here's my challenge this week. To honestly ask yourself, what are you looking for, to right now for meaning and purpose? What are you looking to, that's going to that you, you believe some kind of twisted thinking that that's going to provide ultimate satisfaction unless it's the living God? What is it right now you're hoping is not going to be heaven? but it's going to be something permanent that you're going to like, hang on to the rest of your life, unless it's God. And unless it's God, you're looking in all the wrong places. That's his point. Last week, I did not get to commentaries. Whenever we start a series like this, I like to recommend commentaries, a few. Let me just end this sermon before we sing by doing this. And these are all in our church library, by the way. By the way, I say this regularly, but let me say it again. Pastor Tim does a fantastic job and has been doing a fantastic job of overhauling our library for the past couple of years. And it is really becoming a first-class theological library with good resources and um, academic reference books and, Lord willing, will be completely online by this summer. We're just starting that. So that's, I'm very encouraged. But here's three levels of commentaries, I want to encourage you to at least get one of these and use it as you study along with this series. So we try to pick one in each basic category. So, on a popular level, it's really, and this one's actually written by a scholar. He actually has a doctorate from Aberdeen University, but he's a pastor in Scotland, living life backwards. Ecclesiastes: How Ecclesiastes teaches us to live in the light of the end. That's the one on the left over there by David Gibson. Very good. It's an, basically it's an exposition of, uh, of Ecclesiastes put into print. Middle level one. Intermediate level is the one we actually gave to all of our community group leaders this year. And it's in the Reformed Expository series by Douglas Sean O'Donnell. And very good mid-level pitched commentary. And then if you're looking for something a little more advanced, there's several. This is one we picked. It's in the NIV, NIV application commentary series by Ian Proven, who's actually a good Old Testament scholar with his doctorate from Cambridge and a little more advanced. There's stuff that's even more advanced than this, but if you get one of these three, you're not going to go wrong for the most part in looking and digging further. So I encourage you, when we're in a sermon series like this that's more extended in a book of the Bible, get a commentary, read along, dig, study. Don't just take my word for it. Go to the text and ask, what does the text say here? And there comes the reward of learning that these are the very words of the living God. Let me lead us in prayer and then we're going to sing. Father, we do thank you that there's this book in the Bible that some of us love, some of us hate, but we all admit it's kind of strange, but yet we're glad it's there, yelling out to us, hevel, 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 everything's smoke and mirrors except for God. Forgive us when we have been seeking satisfaction, salvation, joy, purpose, meaning, by putting momentary things before you and remind us how empty that is. I pray for those here this morning who don't know Christ, that in this series, they might be brought to a saving relationship with the living God. And for those of us who do know Christ and are walking with Him, may you encourage us. And for those who know Christ and are drifting, God, may you grab them And bring them back to see the beauty in Christ and to repent and be restored to fellowship. We pray all of this in confidence in Jesus' good name. Amen.